Well, good morning. If uh, it's your first time with us today, we are so thankful that you decided to worship with us. We pray that New City uh, would be a people in a place where just, uh, you would just find refreshment in your heart and soul week after week. You know, today we are in uh, part three of our uh, Scandalous Cradle series, looking at the women in the genealogy of Matthew um, that will take us up to uh, the birth of Jesus and Christmas. You know, and I want to point out something about these women. You know, we've looked at uh, Sarah, which was Abraham's wife who was seen as mostly a noble woman, who, interestingly enough, isn't in the genealogy. Like Sarah, she didn't make the list. But who did make the list? Uh, Well, Tamar and Bathsheba that we looked at last week. Um, Rahab, a prostitute from Israel's enemy. And today we'll see Ruth, uh, which I'm really excited about. But interestingly enough, Ruth, Ruth also was not a direct descendant from the line of Abraham. And so get this. Out of all of the women that show up in the genealogy of Jesus, including Mary, that we'll see next week, not a single one of them, can we say, was a pure and direct descendant from the line of Abraham. They all came in from the outside. Because as we'll see next week, Joseph was the one that came from the line of Abraham. Mary married into the line. And so Jesus, he was actually adopted into the line. But that's next week. But the point is, And we'll see it today as well, is that God's plan from the beginning has always been to bring people from the outside of the family to inside of God's family. And the book of Ruth we see as one of of the best love stories in the Bible. Uh, But it's it's with Ruth, a lady that was outside the family of God. Like she was not uh, an Israelite. And so as we prepare our hearts for Christmas, we're remembering all the things that Jesus kind of brought at his birth we're also seeing week after week is that God's heart and desire has always been to bring people from all walks of life into the family of God. And this week we're going to see God's heart to draw in and care for specifically the marginalized. But it's not a story of only that. No, the book of Ruth is a love story about redemption. That's a theme over the entire book. So if the theme of last week was God's grace, then the theme of this week is God's redemption, leading us to our main idea. Jesus came to be our Redeemer. 32 times in this four-chapter book of Ruth, the words redeem, redeemer, and redemption show up. And when we think of redemption, I think we often think of things in phrases like hope or a comeback story or maybe something like kind of a rags-to-riches story. You know, back in 1994... There was a movie that came out called Shawshank's Redemption. It's now a legendary historic movie, but at the time, uh, fun fact, in the theaters, it actually didn't do very well at first. And one of the reasons they think it didn't do well in the theaters was because they thought people didn't understand the title, thinking it may have been confusing, maybe not understanding the idea of redemption. You know, it's a word that we often use in the church, but it's not as common in our culture as we'd probably think. You know, I think if we were honest with ourselves, especially in the church, we can often use the word redemption fairly regularly without fully understanding its concept. Saying things like, well, I've been redeemed. And what we often mean by that is often, you know, like I've been saved or I'm new or I'm back to my original state. Like I've come out of the pits and now I'm back. I've been redeemed. And that's not necessarily wrong in some ways, but what what, what I want us to see today is that redemption is far more than just a comeback story. And something we need to kind of grasp and understand is that at the heart of redemption is a purchase. 
There's an exchange in redemption. You know, I think a helpful way for us to think of uh, redemption in kind of a non-spiritual concept is with this concept of a coupon. Like we get a coupon and then we redeem it in exchange for like a product or a service. You know, Millie, my, my youngest daughter, she got a coupon last week for a free, free Happy Meal. And so she'll hand in that coupon as a placeholder to then redeem and purchase her Happy Meal. She won't buy it with her own money. No, she'll use the coupon to redeem her meal. So she turns in her coupon, and in exchange, exchange she receives that Happy Meal, which will be like the cheapest daddy-daughter date ever. <laughs> Millie will love it, and I'll, my pocket's old daddy's wallet. But that's redemption. It's a term of exchange or purchase. Uh, you turn in one thing in exchange for another. And so we say as our main idea that Jesus came to be our redeemer, we're saying that Jesus came to be the one that purchased and exchanged something for us. He purchased something better for us. And so we look at this story of Ruth today, we're going to see this beautiful love story that is filled with this concept of redemption. Redemption is being illustrated in this story for us. And so no matter where you are today, this concept of redemption that is at the heart of the Bible in Christianity and Christmas, this provides us with hope, so much hope, because it reminds us that in Jesus we're able to make exchanges, that Jesus purchased something for us. And no matter where you are as a follower of Jesus, knowing that Jesus purchased something for us on our behalf, it leaves us with great anticipation and hope, knowing that in Jesus we always have a gift that is waiting for us. It's a gift that Jesus purchased for us on our behalf. That's, this is redemption. And so if you come in today worried about the world, or your life, or your job, or your kids, or maybe friends, I pray that you would take heart today because Jesus came to purchase that and redeem it. He came to take that from you and exchange it for something better. New City, at the heart of the Bible is redemption, and when Jesus came down to earth bringing us Christmas, he started the process of redemption for, Paul, for all people all over the world and all walks of life. And about a thousand years before, before Jesus was born, bringing about full redemption to all those who call on Jesus in the book of Ruth, God gives us a picture of what this redemption would look like. The again, the book of Ruth illustrates our redemption that we have in Jesus. And so today, I'm going to spend about 20 minutes just kind of reading and telling the story. It's basically a four-chapter short story. Like, it's a love story that we're going to see in three different acts. And so as we kind of tell this story, I'm going to point out a few things and try to bring this to today. But again, the first half of our time, it will be me just kind of telling the story. And so try to just stay locked in with me. And to help us as we go, we're going to see this story again as three acts, to, uh, as a, uh, kind of like a, a, a three-act story. Act one is going to be the tragic setting. Act two is uh, steadfast Ruth. And then act three, we're going to see Boaz, the Redeemer. And then we'll end our three-act short story, bringing this story to today, seeing the gospel through Ruth, and then uh, number five, redemption for today. And so we have five parts to our time. You know, again, the first half is going to be the story of Ruth, and the sec second half we're going to kind of pull out several things. And so let's begin looking at our short story. Look at Ruth 1.1. This is what it says. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. I want to I stop there because in this first chapter, chapter 1 of Ruth, the scene is being set. And so let's just kind of imagine the scene. 
This story lies before David and Bathsheba that we saw last week, but also after the instance with Judah and Tamar, who we also saw last week. So this story is kind of sandwiched between last week's two stories. And so Judah and Tamar, who we saw last week in Genesis 38, their family, it grew and grew. The Exodus happened, the book of Joshua happened, they got the land that God promised them like we saw this past fall, but then we see the book of Judges, where we see things real quick uh, get real bad, real fast. We see how quickly things can go from good to bad with God's people. Like it's a pretty repetitive cycle in the Old Testament. And the book of Joshua ended on a really high note. And then the book of Judges right after, everything kind of just spiraled out of control. Well, here we have in the book of Ruth, uh, in the middle of that out of control downward spiral of God's people, uh, likely placed somewhere in the time, time frame near the end of the book of Judges. And then to add to that, there was a famine in the land leading us to Act 1, the tragic setting. And as we read, it said there was a man of Bethlehem in Judah, which we now know is where Jesus would later be born. And so in essence, the setting is the same town where Jesus was born. But Ruth, the book of Ruth, sits about a thousand years earlier. And so when you see those nativity scenes kind of out, we also need to think the story of Ruth is in that same town. And then we see that in that town was a man uh, that we would later see is named Elimelech, Uh, who had a wife named Naomi, and they had two sons. Well, when the famine happened, they left Bethlehem to go to another place called Moab because they needed food. And while they were there in Moab, their dad passed away. Well, after their dad passed away, while they were in Moab, both sons, they got married to Moabite women named Ruth and Orpha. And marrying these women, uh, it wasn't necessarily forbidden, but it also wasn't seen as favorable because being a Moabite was kind of like being a second-class citizen in their culture back in Bethlehem. And then as the story continues in verse 5, we see that both husbands then die. And Naomi is left without her husband. And not only that, but both of her sons have also died. But she still has their wives, who are now both, also both widows. And so if I lost you now, in essence, in the book of Ruth, we have three widows, two young widows and their widowed mother-in-law, Naomi, which let's just say being widowed uh, was not a favorable position to be in, especially during this time. You know, being widowed, yes, uh, the tragedy of losing their husband, it was awful, but it also meant financial trouble. Like life insurance, it, it wasn't a thing during these times. But being a childless widow, which were all three of these women, was considered double trouble because it meant not just hardship now in the present, but hardship for the rest of their life because they had no kids to help them when they got older. Like uh, there was no such thing as a 401k and a retirement plan or social security or government assistance. No, their retirement plan was their kids uh, growing up to take care of them when they got old. Like their family would provide for them. So the setting for the book of Ruth, it's a very low point. Again, we have three widowed women in financial hardship and without kids destined for a life of hardship and poverty. And they've all experienced like just extreme loss. I mean, just imagine the grief. And the readers at the time would have been thinking, what are they going to do? Like, how are they going to make it? And just maybe you or someone you may know is at this point. Like tragedy Uh, has left you or a loved one in a a place of just complete hopelessness, filled with just grief and despair. New City, dark and hopeless is where the story lies. And again, just maybe you can relate. And if this resonates with you, I pray that you'll keep listening because hope is coming. Redemption is coming. 
And look what it says in verses 6 through 9 in chapter 1, speaking of Naomi, the older mother-in-law. Then she arose with her daughter-in-laws and, uh, to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughter-in-laws, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughter-in-law, her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And so Naomi hears that Bethlehem now has food. The famine, it's over. And she wants to go back to her hometown, and she encourages her two daughter-in-laws to go back to their parents' house so that they can remarry and find uh, long-term stability with a family, hopefully. Because again, long-term stability and security was with their family. And they're all kind of sad about it, and they're all crying again, because again, grief and loss. Like, this is Ruth chapter 1. And as the story continues, they go back and forth on what they should do. Naomi wants them to get married, but they don't want to leave her alone. And then look at uh, the second half of verse 13. Naomi says, Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And so Naomi at this point has fallen into bitterness. Like she thinks the hand of the Lord has gone sour against her and is settled to live a life of bitterness. And again, maybe you can relate in some way, bitter and hopeless, like it's dominating possibly your mind. And then we see in verse 14 that they, can all, they all continue to cry together because this tragic situation, like this is tragic. And Orpha, uh, the other sister, accepts the tragedy and she kisses her mother-in-law goodbye and leaves to go be with her family with the hopes of just possibly remarrying because a life of poverty and hardship, she couldn't bear it. She did what most people would have done. She went home to be with her family. But Ruth, she stayed with Naomi. Look what Naomi says to Ruth. She said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. You see, Ruth's loyalty in this moment to Naomi, it's just incredible. Seeing Act 2, steadfast Ruth. Now, I know that word steadfast, we don't use it often, but if, if you don't know this term, add it to your vocabulary, because this is a picture of God's heart. Ruth looks at Naomi and says, Naomi, I will not leave you, essentially saying, if you're homeless, I'll be homeless. If you don't eat, I won't eat. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Like, I'm staying by your side. We're in this together. New City Ruth, in this moment, is giving a picture of what it means to be steadfast and unmoving in the face of tragedy. Ruth, she's not going anywhere. And this is a picture of loyalty and kindness and friendship in the type of family that we all long for. To have people by our side in our brokenness and when we're in the pits of despair, we all long to have people that will say to us, no, no matter what happens, I'm with you, I'm by your side, where you go, I will go, when you cry, I, I will cry. New City, Naomi, uh, Ruth is Naomi's ride or die. 
And y'all, I can't help but stop here in this moment and just acknowledge that we all need people like Ruth in our life. And not just people for us in our hardship, but I pray that we would be like Ruth to those around us in their hardship. That we would be steadfast and unmoving no matter what. That we would be a sort of anchor to those around us that are going through just the crazinesses of life. Y'all, this is a picture of the ideal church. This is a picture of one of our core values that we call authentic relationships. Just being steadfast and unmoving regardless of the challenge. You know, I don't just pray this for us in our community here inside of New City, but I also pray that we would be this for the community outside of New City. That we would be a steadfast, continuous presence in the heart of Tampa Bay. You know, when we say we're anchored for the mission this December, we're saying we're here for the long haul. Like, we're not going anywhere. That God has called us, New City, to be a steadfast presence in the Tampa Bay area, to be anchored, to be an anchored lighthouse of God's love for many years to come. That we will show the love of Jesus to people in all walks of life, including caring for the marginalized and the hurting and the broken. You know, we just came off of, uh, of Serve Week, serving the poor and the orphan and the widow and unwed mothers and refugees. And I want to remind us that we don't do this because it's culturally trendy or out of duty or obligation or because uh, we have a special call to it, but rather we do this because this is the very heart of God. New City, God is steadfast and unmoving and cares for the marginalized in all walks of life, and so we, in return, do the same. And I hope and pray uh, that you are blessed by Serve Week. If you miss it, we do, this, we do these four times a year, and we also have several opportunities that still need more help if you're interested in serving the community. But something else I want to point out with Ruth, in this moment with Naomi, saying, where you go, I will go, showing her her commitment and her hardship. New City, this is what Jesus secured for us at the cross and in our salvation. This is God's heart for us as his children. When we are in Christ, God, he truly is steadfast and immovable in our life. He's our rock and stable presence. And church, this is good news. Ruth, she was committed to Naomi, but Jesus, he's better He's the better Ruth. And so as we see Ruth's loyalty to, to Naomi, and look what happens next in the story. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? And so Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. And so in this tragic setting that we see in chapter 1, Naomi changes her name to Mara, showing that she is still bitter. Ruth is still pledged to stay by her side, seeing Ruth's steadfast loyalty. They return back to Bethlehem as the harvest season begins. And in Q chapter 2, this is kind of the turning point. Look what it says. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. <laughs> the original language here makes this a bit dramatic. Because it's not just a worthy man, but Boaz, we know, he's like a wealthy man. He's a reputable man. He's a man of status and position. And his name, Boaz, it means strength. Like if this were a movie, at this point, some of the guys would kind of be rolling their eyes, knowing exactly how the story's going to end. 
with the, lady, with the ladies having all the heart eyes, with the music playing in the background, because this is strong. Boaz. Well, the book of Ruth, this was like the original Hallmark Christmas movie. And look what it says next. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And of course, of course Boaz sees Ruth putting in work. She's running circles around everyone. And, she, and he asks his worker, like, who is this lady? And he says, that's young, the young, young Moabite woman who's, who, who came with Naomi. And Boaz says to Ruth, I've seen, you've done, uh, I've seen what you've done with your mother-in-law, and the Lord shall repay you for your sacrifice and give you refuge, and you, you can stay in this field with these other women and reap whatever you can get. And of course, Ruth, she's just blown away by it all, by the kindness of it. She says, you've comforted me. You've been so kind to me, but I'm not one of your servants. Look how the romance continues. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed through her roasted grain, and she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. So Boaz didn't just provide her with food. No, he invited her to his table to eat. Like this was a very fine meal with their other, with other, with their other people. And I don't know about you, but this seems like a little group date. Uh, to the Olive Garden, maybe, dipping the bread and passing the roasted grain, like there's wine at the table. Yes, commentators, they may disagree on the intent here, but it sure does seem like a date to me. And after their casual group date, she continues working in the fields for the rest of the day, and she gleaned an ephah of barley, which was enough barley for two and a half weeks for her and Naomi, and she got, uh, and she got it all in a day. I mean, just imagine Ruth carrying these massive bags, 50 pounds worth of barley after a day's work. New City, Ruth, she was putting in work. She was getting it done. She was working her tail off, running circles around everyone to provide for her and Naomi. She told Naomi she would stand by her, and, 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 and Ruth is showing her here. She's not just doing lip service. No, she's keeping her word. And when Naomi saw that Ruth brought, what Ruth brought back, Naomi asked, where did this come from? She says, you've been very blessed. This man will be blessed. And she said, uh, we can imagine kind of with the uh, music and the crescendo in the background, his name is Boaz. And then look what Naomi says in the second half of verse 20. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And then Ruth continues to tell and tells Naomi that all of the other blessings he gave her by letting her continue and come back and stay with the others. And Naomi affirms the goodness and kindness and all of this. And as we end chapter 2, we step into a steamy chapter 3 of our love story. So we're introduced to this concept of redemption. Naomi said that Boaz was a close relative and that he is one of their redeemers, seeing Act 3, Boaz the Redeemer. And if you remember this concept of redemption and redeemer, we talked about how redemption is built on this idea of exchanging and purchasing. And here in the book of Ruth, we see a different type of redemption that God did by redeeming his people. Yes, purchasing and exchanging is still in play, but Boaz is a kinsman redeemer, which is just a fancy word for relative. And it simply means uh, because Boaz was related to Ruth and Naomi's now deceased husband, Boaz, according to the law of Moses, was in line to be able to purchase Naomi's property and also to be able to step in and marry Ruth, who are both now widows. 
which was seen as a way to care for them, kind of like a life insurance policy. And when Naomi and Ruth find out uh, that this strong, kind, worthy, wealthy man was in line to be their redeemer and take them under his wing, they're like, well, I guess it's time to let Boaz know. And Naomi's like, well, Ruth, I guess you'll have to get all dressed up and let this kind, strong, generous Boaz know he's your redeemer, which is the scene in Act 3 that begins to get a little steamy. Because again, Naomi tells Ruth to get all dolled up, and after Boaz has finished eating and drinking, Naomi tells Ruth to go and lay down at Boaz's feet at the threshing floor. And this is the point when it seems to get a little scandalous. Just to throw this out there, ladies, do not, I repeat, do not see this as an example to follow. But Ruth listens to Naomi and does what she says, and this is what it says in verses 6 and 7, chapter 3. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. So Ruth, before she knew it, knew that Boaz could be her kinsman redeemer. She put her head down and worked hard. But when she found out he could be hers, she noticed, she thought, well, I need him to notice me. And so what did she do? She went and laid at his feet. This is when you start to see that things are steaming up. Look what it says next. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant. You are my redeemer. So Ruth here, he simply just proposed in a very bold way to Boaz, saying, you have the rights to be my husband. Like, I'm here for you. I am yours. And he says, back, you're so kind. The Lord will bless you. I've seen you as a noble woman, not chasing after wealth. But there's another man who needs to be considered first according to their custom. custom. So he needs to have the opportunity to redeem you and Naomi uh, before. Uh, So this is kind of showing Boaz's great character. And as we step into chapter 4, we continue to see Boaz as an honorable man, going to the guy, talking with this this person who was in line before him, talking with him, saying, you have the rights to be a redeemer and purchase all of their family's property. And the guy's like, sounds great, I'll do it. He sees the opportunity for a bargain, for some land uh, and property. Like, he's all about it. And then Broaz brings to his attention, oh yeah, Ruth, uh, the Moabite is also involved. And he's like, oh, I can't do that. I'll pass. I, he, because he knows he can't have a Moabite in his family. And he says, you, Boaz, you can have her. And we see the ceremony in chapter 4. They seal the deal, and Boaz purchases Naomi's property and marries Ruth, and he redeems them. And look what it says as the story ends in verse 13 of chapter 4. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. And for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the woman of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. So they get married, Ruth has a baby, and Naomi and Ruth, they live happily ever after. 
So Naomi and Ruth are both blessed immensely. Church, Naomi, she goes from bitter to blessed. The story begins with death and funerals and famine, but ends with marriage and birth and new life. This is the story of Ruth. It's a great story. It's a great love story. But the reason this story is so great is not because of Ruth or Boaz. The reason this story is great because it points us to Jesus. This paints a picture of redemption. It shows us the gospel. It shows us, number four, the gospel through Ruth. And the reason we know it points us to Jesus is because the story of Ruth ends with a genealogy. Listen, the climax of the story of Ruth is not in the marriage. No, the climax of the story of Ruth is in the genealogy. It's at the very end that points us to King David. It begins with Perez, the son of Judah, goes through Boaz, and ends with David. And we follow Matthew's genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. It builds off of the end of Ruth and takes us all the way to Jesus, who is our ultimate Redeemer. You see, the birth of Jesus screams that redemption is here, that new life and rebirth is here, that hope is here, because the scandalous cradle that we see in a barn in Bethlehem where Jesus was born a thousand years before his birth in Bethlehem, we see the steadfastness and courage of Ruth and the kindness and the redemption of Boaz. And we think of that little town of Bethlehem where Jesus would be born and where Ruth and Boaz met, Bethlehem, it screams redemption. It screams and shouts new life and new birth. It screams that God takes bitterness and turns it into blessing. And New City, this is the gospel. New City, Jesus is our better Boaz. Jesus is our Redeemer who sees us in our desperation and sees us without hope and in our poverty of sin. And he came onto the scene to be our Redeemer and to bring us uh, into his family to protect us and watch over us and to heal us and restore us. Jesus came to purchase us and redeem us. But the exchange that he made for our purchase, it wasn't by his financial resources. No, it was by giving up his very life. Boaz, he didn't have to sacrifice much to redeem Naomi and Ruth. But Jesus, he sacrificed his life. He went to the cross. He purchased our sin in exchange for his blessing. Boaz got land, property, and a wife where Jesus, in his transaction, in contrast, he got all of our sin and a bloody cross. New City, our purchase price was the cross. Our purchase price for redemption was the blood of Jesus. And yet in exchange for that purchase, for our redemption, do you know what we get? Again, we're brought into his family. We're crowned with royalty. We're given gifts of peace and hope and love and his steadfast presence that will never leave us. Not just that, we're promised a a future full of total, totally complete redemption where poverty and sin and bitterness and the marginalized, they do not exist. God has provided us with redemption, but that redemption won't be complete until we see him face to face. In the end, your city, the need for redemption, it began in the garden. It started in the cradle. It was secured at the cross, but it won't be fully completed until the end when he brings us home. And in the meantime, while we're waiting and longing for that full redemption, you know what Jesus does for us right now? <laughs> he takes our bitter hearts and he blesses us. He takes our needy, worn-out souls and he restores them. And he takes our pain and our grief and he simply just holds it. He sits with us and in time he heals us. You see, this is the hope that Jesus brought. When Jesus came down to earth, he brought the hope of redemption. And again, do you know what is astounding about all this? This is not just 
true in theory, but it's true for real life. Jesus didn't go to the cross for us to, us, us to understand the theory of redemption. No, he went to the cross to purchase our life. The real, raw troubles we face, he came to redeem them in the right now moment, present moment. Leading us to number five, redemption for today. New City, when we face troubles and hardships in this life, when we face sickness or lack of food or resources or emotional bitterness or hardness of heart or some sort of great loss or grief or we're believing we have no hope, which is exactly what happened in chapter one with Ruth and Naomi. Like that's the tragic setting of Ruth. When those things happen, do you know what our Redeemer Jesus tells us and reminds us of? He looks at us in our bitterness, in weeping and sadness and trouble, and he says to us, I purchased that. I, I came for that. I purchased that at the cross. I gave my blood for that. Your financial troubles, your work troubles, your family troubles, Jesus says, fear not, I purchased that trouble. Jesus says, fear not, I purchased that trouble at the cross. Jesus came to redeem it. Jesus says to us, don't take that trouble back. Don't bear that burden on your own. I purchased that trouble. And in exchange, you know what he gives us? He gives us his peace. (laughs) He says, I give you my blessings. He never said our troubles would go away. But you know what? At the cross, he purchased our troubles to take on as his troubles so that we can be redeemed. Again, when Jesus went to the cross to die for our sins, he purchased not just our sins, but he purchased our entire life. And we say Jesus has my life. That also means Jesus has our emotions and our relationships and our needs and desires and our grief. And our job and the whole deal is to simply just allow our Redeemer to be our Redeemer. And so, yes, the book of Ruth, it shows us a picture of redemption. It directs our attention to the gospel. But New City, I don't want us to miss that it also calls us to a response. Every time the gospel does the work in us, it then moves us to respond. And the response the book of Ruth calls us to is, yes, first receive the redemption that is found in Jesus, to receive the free gift that Jesus purchased for us at the cross. Because Jesus purchased our redemption, but in order for our redemption to be secured and completed, we have to actually like receive it. Boaz could have offered to redeem Naomi and Ruth, but if they never accepted it and received it, it the redemption never would have been completed. And if you've never placed your faith in Jesus, let today be that day where your redemption is secured and, and receive the gift of salvation that Jesus purchased for you with his life at the cross. And the gift you receive is eternal life in Jesus and a totally clean slate and a new life in Jesus. And this gift is secured through faith. That's the first step. Accept the gift that Jesus purchased for you at the cross. But then next, if you've accepted the gift, we have to know that the redemption Jesus purchased for us, it doesn't stay with us. No, it changes us, it works in us, and then it passes through us. So after we receive the gift of redemption that Jesus purchased for us, we then pass it on to others. Yes, through gospel proclamation, but also through tangible acts of mercy like we see in the book of Ruth. When we say we're a missionally urgent people here at New City, well, that also includes acts of mercy. And yes, we do things like Serve Week where we go into our community, but let's just ask in like the last five minutes of our time, what does it look like for us to display the book of Ruth to the world around us just in our everyday life? What does it look like for us to be steadfast in mercy like Ruth was for Naomi? 
What does it look like for us to be this for those in our community, to be this for our friends, our families? You know what? One of the most loving things we can do for our community is just simply be reliable, to be committed to a place and to a people, even when it's not easy or convenient. Because this is a picture of God's mercy shown through simply being present and consistent. Moms and dads, this is one of the greatest gifts we can give to our kids. Being consistent and steadfast and present in our love and discipline and care and reminding them and displaying to them that we love them no matter what. Listen, being a consistent, unmoving, and stable and steadfast presence is a remarkable gift that we can give to those around us. New City, this is one of my many prayers for us as a church, that we would be a steadfast presence in the heart of those around us. And then also, as we think about caring for the marginalized on the tail end of Serve Week, I want us to also think how we care for the marginalized around, around us outside of Serve Week. And when, I, and when I think about this, it can be extremely daunting because every story, it can just seem like a lot to take on. And one of the most helpful things that has stuck with me has been the philosophy of just do for one that we wish we could do for many. We can't help everyone, but we can help maybe one. And you know what? Maybe helping one goes a lot further than helping none. So who is maybe one person in our direct influence that could be poor or homeless or marginalized or widowed or orphaned or a refugee? Maybe a single mom. Like what does it look like for us to think in a systematic, and systematically act in a way to care for just one person or one family in a regular and a consistent way? that could make a difference in just one life. Boaz, he he didn't redeem them all. Like there was a whole group of people in his fields. But you know what? He did redeem the family of Ruth and Naomi. He redeemed one family. So yes, there is an individual responsibility, but we also have a corporate and collective responsibility to think about how we can care for the marginalized. And you know, and this year, I'm excited to announce that in our year-end offering... Anchored for the mission, we're designated 20% of our kingdom advancing offering specifically to local ministries for kingdom advancing causes. Yeah, praise the Lord. And we're going to give, yes, we're going to give to international missions and church planting. We're also going to give to organizations that help with the poor and orphans and those in challenging pregnancy situations and those that are marginalized. And there are several ministries that we want to give to, but one of them is a ministry to teen moms. Right now, in the Ministry of Young Lives, is, tr- is, is trying to get off the ground here in Tampa. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with the ministry, but one of our own here at New City is spearheading the efforts to get off the ground. And a fun fact, my sister, she worked on staff with this ministry for several years up in North Carolina. But this ministry, it's a ministry to teen moms that are high school kids, pregnant, uh, or that have already had their babies. And the ministry comes around them and supports them and helps them and does whatever they can to help them graduate high school just in practical ways while weekly just sharing the love of Jesus. Every week, the mentors and leaders meet them in schools, have lunch with them, and just listen and try to help. They have clubs and Bible studies, just all of it. And I can tell you all about the ministry, but I think stories, they just give a better picture. Just listen to these two stories from these girls that are involved, like right now. One girl... She got pregnant, and her dad, when he found out, he set up an appointment for her to have an abortion. She didn't want to have it. She wanted to have the baby, and so she left her home at 15 years old, disobeying her dad's wishes so that she could have the baby. I mean, talk about courage. You know, that baby is one now, and the mentors of young lives are coming around her right now to help her and to love her. And then another girl, right now, 20 weeks pregnant, 
leaves school at 3.30, goes to work from 4 to 10 at Winn-Dixie, and then goes and sleeps in her car to then go to school the very next day. She's exhausted, but the mentors have come around her, loving on her. Well, these are just two of the stories. We could go on and on about these types of stories. But the point is, we as a church want to do whatever it takes to be the hands and feet of Jesus for the marginalized in our community. In just a simple way, helping ministry like this get off the ground, and we, we want to mobilize mentors and leaders. We want to do it. And your year-end offering will help to fund this ministry and ministries like it. Like, this is our collective effort. Yo, we want to do whatever we can to be the hands and feet of Jesus to our community, showing a small picture of the redemption Jesus purchased for us at the cross. But again, do you know what we do first? Our first step is always, it is always to just marvel at the, at the one who first redeemed us. Y'all, there are millions of things we can chase after, pouring out ourselves and, wanting, and just doing whatever we can. But if we're not first letting our Redeemer be our Redeemer, we'll burn out. We won't be able to do it. New City, Jesus went to the cross to purchase your life and my life. He came to redeem our life. And so may we not take back into our hands the things that he's in the process of redeeming himself. This process of redemption, it is a lifelong endeavor, but yet again today, he says to each of us, give me your life yet again today. Give me your troubles. Give me your worries. I came down to earth. Jesus came down to earth, he says, and he purchased that. He says, I'm redeeming you. In church, to that we say, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. God, you're so good. God, your kindness to us is shown day after day. It's all over the book of Ruth. God, you're so kind to redeem us and to help us. God, may we just marvel at the redemption that you've shown to us, that you came in to help us. You, you purchased us so that we could then have your blessing. You exchanged your life for ours. God, may we just sit in that today knowing that you are our steadfast, immovable redeemer. And then you have not given up on us and that you are continuing to work in us. God, we love you and we desperately need you. We ask this in Jesus' name.